Mark 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead meant, might mean. And they asked him, why, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. We've been making our way through most of the gospel of Mark since February. And uh, right now in chapter 9, what we're at is is a turning point. We're at sort of this turning point in the gospel of Mark because the first half of the book, the first half of Mark was all about the uniqueness of who Jesus is, right? The disciples, the Pharisees, the scribes, all the people in the region, they didn't know that Jesus was God himself, the eternal king of kings. And so Jesus is is revealing all throughout the first half who he really is as God in the flesh. And then the second half now, which we're entering, the second half of the Gospel of Mark is all about the uniqueness of what Jesus came to do. So the first half is about the uniqueness of who Jesus is. The second half is about the uniqueness of what exactly Jesus came to do. And what we see is that Jesus, at this point, he starts explaining to his disciples that that he's a different kind of king. He's a king who serves, a king that goes to a cross to save his people. And as Jesus further unpacks now who he is and what it is that he came to do, we start to see now uh, how his glory and his cross actually fit together, how he brings us hope when we're dealing with with doubts, with depression, with anxiety, with just the hard stuff of of life. And that's what we we see in this chapter. And so I'm going to walk us through three stages in this story. First, we're going to look at uh, the glorious uh, mountaintop experience. This great mountaintop experience. Secondly, we're going to look at this grim valley experience. And thirdly, we're going to look at the gift of dependence in God and and through prayer. And so let's look at that first one. Uh, Glorious mountaintop experience. A glorious mountaintop experience. Uh, Read uh, chapter 9, verse 2 with me. It says, After six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. These three guys are sort of like his inner circle. And then it says, he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, that's a fascinating scene here, right? Here's Jesus. 
the Son of God, and He's appearing in the fullness of His glory for the first time. The book of Revelation at the end of the Bible tells us that in, in, in eternity, in the future, Jesus' face is going to shine so brilliant that it's going to shine like, like the sun. And here in Mark chapter 9, these guys, Peter, James, and John, they're getting sort of like this preview of, of, of that. Now, I never watched the original Star Wars movies as a kid. Uh, and before you get mad at my parents, that's not their fault. <laughs> uh, I, I just wasn't into like sci-fi or like fantasy type stories back then. But uh, do you guys remember recently, like when the when the last uh, Star Wars trailer came out? Um, I don't think the upcoming one has come out, but I'm I'm talking about like the 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 the, the recent one where where at the beginning of the trailer you see Rey, who's like sort of this 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 new girl Jedi that is getting trained by this old curmudgeonly like Luke Skywalker on this island, like the hero from the original trailer. And, and I remember sitting in movie theaters, and this trailer would pop up, and everyone was like, what? There's Luke. Oh my gosh, this is going to be amazing, right? And that's, that's the effect that Jesus is having on his three disciples right here. He's given them a preview of his revelation glory on full display. And when we say the glory of God, what we're talking about is his beauty, his radiance, the holiness of the God of the Bible. We're talking about his worthiness and his weightiness, his prominence and his preeminence, his supremacy and his superiority. And the Bible teaches us that God's glory is so intense that if you were to see it apart from his grace and protection, that you would just fall over dead. You would go blind and you would just fall over as though you were dead. But, but every once in a while in the scriptures, we do see that God uniquely reveals just a glimpse of his glory to his people. One place we see that is in the book of Exodus, the third book of the Bible, when the prophet Moses, he saw God's glory and sat in its presence. He sat in the presence of God and his glory on Mount Sinai. And Moses was serving as a mediator between God and people, and so God invites him up to this mountain, and this bright cloud descends, and God uniquely and visibly reveals his own glory to Moses. And we're told that when Moses came down from that mountain, if you remember, for, to deliver the Ten Commandments to the people, it says that his face was radiating. It was shining white from the glory of God, just from sitting in the presence of God. By the way, did you know that in some sense... Like, this is what happens when we encounter the glory of God and His grace today. Maybe not in like a visible, shining sense, but in some way, that's what happens when we encounter God's grace. Like, when we encounter the presence of God in Jesus Christ, when Jesus restores us to a relationship with God the Father through word and through spirit, then in some sense, you become a radiator of the glory of God. Restored to the original image of God, like, like, like Oscar taught us last week. You see, apart from God's glory and grace, we are dead in our sins. But by grace, through faith, God makes us alive. And when he makes us alive, he fills us with his presence. Like positionally, when we're in Christ, he fills us with his presence so that now we radiate his glory and grace. And so others see God's compassion like in, in our eyes through our mercy. They see his goodness in how we serve they see his holiness in how we live our lives because we reflect and radiate his glory. 
as salt and as light in the world. And so here we are now, though, centuries after Moses' mountaintop experience. And in Mark chapter 9, we see Jesus is on top of another mountain. He's on top of another mountain with another display of God's glory again. And it says, uh, read, read verse 2 and 3 with me, and it says that he was transfigured or transformed before them. Verse 3 says, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And then verse 4, it says that there appeared to them uh, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And so... Peter, James, and John, they see not only Jesus and all his brilliance, they see the old prophets Elijah and Moses. And so there's the glory of God on the mountaintop. There's a mountain. Moses is there. And in a few verses, we're going to see there's a cloud that descends. So, so, so we should ask ourselves, like, hey, is this Mount Sinai all over again? Right? Is this Mount Sinai, like from Exodus with Moses, is this kind of that all over again? And the answer is no. Because there is a huge difference in how Moses reflected God's glory on his face, like, like sort of the way that the moon reflects the light of the sun. But here, Jesus is the source of glory. He's the source of glory. He's the one producing it. It's emanating from him. The unapproachable glory of God comes from him. Hebrews 1.3 says it like this. It says that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The NIV says the exact representation of God's being. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, remember... It's, it's not just Jesus and the, sort of the trifecta, right? Like Peter, James, and John. It's not just Jesus and, and Peter, James, and John's here. It says in verse 4 that Elijah and Moses, the old prophets, were there too, appearing and talking with Jesus. Now, what is going on? What is the significance of that? What is the significance of Elijah and of Moses? Well, Moses, he was the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible, Right? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, which, which means the law in five parts. And so, so he wrote the law of God, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial laws. Like all of those laws, those Old Testament laws, are represented now by Moses here. Elijah is a great Old Testament prophet. Some of them considered him, apart from Moses, like the greatest prophet. And so he represents all of the prophets. So basically, we have the law, and we have the prophets appearing with Jesus. Now, just so you know, you, 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 might, you might know that when you're reading the Gospels, the stories of, of Jesus, the Old Testament, another way that the Old Testament is described is by, by calling it the law and the prophets. And so what that tells us, if you're tracking with me, is that with Moses and Elijah appearing with him, uh, basically God is making a point here. He's saying all of those writings, all the law, all the prophets, the whole Bible is about Jesus. It's about the glory of Jesus. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he says, I came to fulfill them. In other words, all the Old Testament is now being fulfilled in Jesus. He is the glory of God that the entire Old Testament points to. He didn't just point to it. Jesus doesn't just point to God's glory like Moses and Elijah did. He embodies it himself. 
You see, the temple was about Jesus because the temple priest was the mediator and now Jesus is our mediator. And the temple was all about the presence of God, but now in Jesus, we have the new presence of God, like the full presence of God. In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was about Jesus because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's our Passover Lamb who has been slain. The old Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, it was actually just earlier this week. That day pointed forward to the atoning work of Jesus on the cross in our place for our sins. That was the point of it. That's why we, 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 that's why we as Christians, we're not obligated to celebrate Yom Kippur because Jesus is that ultimate atoning work for us. That whole day pointed forward to Jesus. And so it's worth noting that both Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, they, pre- they also previously came face to face with God's glory on mountaintops. They came face to face with God's glory on mountaintops. Moses in Exodus and Elijah in 1 Kings. And so the parallels here, if you're tracking, the parallels are so clear. God is handing it to them on a silver platter. He's revealing that clearly that Jesus is the glorious God and Savior that all the old books foretold. He is the one that we've all been longing for. And so there's this big epic crescendo of Christ's glory here in Mark chapter 9. And then Peter speaks up uh, in verse 5. It says, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Which is kind of hilarious, because that's like saying rain is wet, right? Like, it's like, no kidding, the Son of God just turned his eternal glory light up. And it's like, of course it's good to be there. Of course it's good to witness this. But then he says, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And here he's referencing the Old Testament custom where you would set up shelter at the Feast of Tabernacles to communicate like the presence of God. And, and it says that Peter said this because, verse 6, because he just didn't know what to say. <laughs> he just didn't know what to say. And they were terrified. And, and, and you got to love that. You got to love that. You see, one of the reasons that we believe in the historicity of the scriptures is like the authors, they don't actually make themselves out to be that great, do they? Like they show Jesus is great. They do a good job at that. But they're pretty honest about how sometimes they're just bumbling fools. Right? And so Peter doesn't know what to say. He's running his mouth. And then in verse 7, he gets interrupted by God. In verse 7, it says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and then a voice came out of the cloud that said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So Moses and Elijah are now gone. Now, God the Father says to these disciples, this is my son. Listen to him. Why? Why is this important? You see, God with, the, with Moses and Elijah, he's saying, because Jesus is the key to understanding the law and the prophets. Jesus is the key to understanding God's word. If you want to understand the key to life and to meaning and purpose, then listen to Jesus. If you want to make sense of your own loss and your own suffering, then turn to Jesus. If you want to make sense of your heart's desires, want to make sense of your heart's longings, if you want to know God's will for your own life and who you were meant to be, your truest identity, then come to Jesus and listen to him. 
You see, Peter, James, and John, they were given a foretaste of Jesus' glory, the glory of Christ. They were given an advanced showing. They got a snapshot of where Jesus was heading and what his glory would look like at the end of all time. But look, it was just a preview at this point. It was just a preview. As brilliant and as awesome and as glorious as that was, it was just a preview. And Jesus still had to move through the cross to get there, to that place of glory. And so they're faced now with the reality that life for us on this side of death is not all glory, is it? How many of us can relate to that, right? Like, we might be here this morning, you might say, like, look, I'm a follower of Jesus. Like, I've, I've experienced God's glory and grace in my life. Like, I used to hate him, but now I love him. I used to think he was foolish and want nothing to do with him, but now he's just brilliant and bright light to me. Like, I'm attracted to him. I'm drawn to him by his spirit. But as great as, as that experience is, as great as our salvation is, we're still faced with the reality that for us on this side of death, life is not all glory, is it? And so that leads us to our second point, which is the Grim Valley experience. Life is full with grave and grim valley experiences. In the following verses, right after this glorious mountaintop experience, Mark places this Grim Valley experience in his own narrative. As soon as they come down from the mountaintop, these disciples and Jesus, they dive right into a a scene of confusion, of evil, of anxiety. There's arguing and division, and God just kind of seems far from it all. At the bottom of the mountain, it's it's just a hot mess. And that's just like real life, isn't it? (laughs) That's just like real life. Like it also happened to Moses on Mount Sinai. He saw God's glory, and then he comes down, and he has to deal with God's people worshiping an idol. And that's just real life. Like we have these mountaintop experiences, these mountaintop religious experiences in spirit and in truth, but then we get back to the regular grind of life, which is just not all that glorious. It's not all that glamorous. But some of us have this proclivity to do what Peter did when he said, you know, hey, let's build us some tents. (laughs) Let's draw this out. Let's tabernacle here with the presence of God. Let's try and sustain this mountaintop experience. You know what that's like? It's like when you when you go to like a conference or or like a men's retreat or a women's retreat and you sort of get this like retreat high, right? How many of you guys know what that's like? Right? You go, you hear like the music, you have these great conversations, you have this retreat, hi. Uh, and then, and, and, and then, or maybe you grew up at, at a church that had like ministries that you now missed or that did things a certain way. Or maybe it's an experience of worship or, or a certain teacher or community that really impacted you and that God used that in your life. And to be clear, like I'm not knocking those, those things. I'm not knocking those very real experiences. We can thank God for those, but you can't keep trying to recreate and relive a specific spiritual moment. You can't. Those aren't meant to last. You can't try and relive a specific spiritual moment when real life is just right in front of you. The daily grind happens at the bottom of the mountain. Just the other day, my my soon-to-be four-year-old daughter was uh, talking about how she just had like a really boring day, right? She's like, ugh, today was so boring. It's like, since when is boring a category for her, right? Like, I'm like, man, like, I miss the days when just peeking through my fingers made her go bonkers, right? 
and it was just bonkers with amusement. But now we have, but now she gets she gets bored with her days, right? Now that's an option for her. It's like, but now even though she's she's different, she's grown, she's she's wiser. Now we have these new sacred moments where we read the Bible together, we go through catechisms together, we chat about our day. It's her favorite thing to do. Like, hey, let's chat, right? You see, we're not. We're not meant to, to live in these, in these spiritual high moments. We're meant to, to move on from them. There's, there's, there's other stuff to do. There's other experiences to be had. Read verse 9 with me. It says, And as they were coming down the mountain, he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, if you remember last time we were in the Gospel of Mark, Peter was having a hard time wrapping his mind around the fact that in order for Jesus to be a triumphant Savior, he needed to first be a servant who suffers. He had a hard time with that. He must go to the cross. Jesus must go to the cross, and Peter had a hard time with that. And so when the disciples have asked about Elijah in verse 12, what they're doing is they're pushing back on what Jesus is saying. They want the Christian life to be all glory with no cross, all mountaintop with no valley. They're just like us, right? Here's what the disciples ask about Elijah. Read, read, read in verse 11 with me. It says, and so then they asked him, because they were confused about, you know, Jesus talking about having to die and, the, and rising. And so they asked him, why do the scribes, the Old Testament scribes, why do they say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come, does come first to restore all things. And how, and how is it written in the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, what's happening here? is the disciples were, were, were pointing out to Jesus that the Old Testament said that Elijah would return before the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord in the Old Testament was a time when God would show up to finally make all things right, to finally fix all that is broken. And so basically what the disciples are saying by asking about Elijah here, they're saying like, hey, you know, we just saw Jesus. We just saw Elijah. So does that mean the day is here? Does that mean it's time for you now to take over? Why are you talking about dying and rising? Why all this suffering talk? Why all this death talk? Elijah just came. The day is here. Take over. But Jesus responds. <coughs> he responds by saying, basically, uh, he says, you know, John the Baptist is the new Elijah. John the Baptist is the new Elijah. And he, John the Baptist, he had to suffer and die. And if he had to suffer and die, Jesus says, now so do I. In the same way that Elijah's coming in the Old Testament was a foretelling of the Messiah's coming, John the Baptist's execution was a foreshadowing of the Messiah's execution. And so what that means for us, like the question for you and I is not will we have to endure suffering and hardship? The Bible says on this side of death, we absolutely will, right? Work will be hard. We will suffer loss. We will deal with depression. The Bible makes it clear that in the same way that Jesus had to experience suffering, so will we. He didn't come to save us from present troubles, but from the greater enemy, from sin and death itself. And so the question for us is, will our sufferings and tribulations, will they make us better and stronger and wiser and more compassionate? Or will they make us bitter and cynical? and hard-hearted. 
Will our trials, will they drive you closer to God or will they drive you away from him? You see, our faith is tested and strengthened in the valley. Peter wanted to enshrine the glory experience on the mountaintop. But the purpose of the glory moments are to strengthen us for life in the valley, for life on the in-between. You see, there's a sense in which we experience the hope and joy of salvation now. But there's also a sense in which the fullness of that is just not yet, right? We experience loss. We experience depression and anxiety. We experience confusion. The valley is where the need is. It's where we remember the glory of God and where we lean into him in dependence. And that leads us to our last and final point, which is the gift of dependence. I want you to read the next chunk of text with me. We're going to read verse 14 through 19. They come fully now down off the mountain, and it says in verse 14, when they came to the disciples, the rest of the disciples... They saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes, the religious scribes, were arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, when they saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him, and they asked him, or he asked them, rather, what are you arguing about? What are you arguing about with them? And then someone from the crowd answered Jesus and said, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them. He answered all the disciples now, and he says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him, bring this boy to me. So, now what's going on here? You see, here we see that people are in need. They're confused. They're suffering. The enemy is at work. If the mountaintop is the place of glory and privilege, then the valley is the place of temptation and faith testing. It's the place where we can either triumph through the pressures or we can actually cave under their weight. The valley is where believers are tempted to act like unbelievers. And most of us know what that's like. Most of us have been there. And some of us are there right now. We're there today. Where the glory of God to us just seems like it's in the rearview mirror and there's just a problem in front of us hogging our windshield view. That's these disciples. They've been following Jesus for months. They've seen and beheld his glory and his beauty and his miracles and his teaching. They've been following him around for months, but here they're arguing with each other, and Jesus calls them a faithless and unbelieving generation. Now, how often is it that we're tempted to depend on our own strength? How often is it that you're, tempted, that you're tempted to depend on your own strength, to depend on your own resources, your own wisdom? We're like these disciples who couldn't cast out the unclean spirit and try to deal with it on their own. And yet here Jesus teaches us that when the vision of his glory meets the valley of our trials, that is where we find the powerful gift of dependency. In verse 19, he says, bring the boy to me. Read verse 20 now. It says, then they brought the boy to him, to Jesus. And when the spirit saw him immediately, when the spirit, that's the evil spirit, when it saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And then Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? 
And the father said, since childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and and into water and to, to try and destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, the father, he says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took the boy by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, I know that's a lot of verses, but there's, I want you to, 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 to see just the gift of dependence that's magnified in here. Jesus says, The reason you couldn't do it is because, is because you weren't in prayer. You know what prayer is? Prayer is many things, but if it's one thing, it's an active dependence on God through Jesus Christ. If prayer is one thing, it's an active dependence on God through Jesus Christ. You see, the disciples, they, in this moment, they lacked that dependence. They lacked it. They had little faith. Jesus actually calls them faithless generation. The religious scribes are there too, but they're just arguing with, with each other. Like only one person in this story has active dependence on God, and it's the boy's father. He's the only one who's different. And he says in, in verse 24, he says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. You know what I love about that? This is a model prayer. I believe. Help my unbelief. That is a model prayer for us this morning. It's humble. It's honest. It's vulnerable. It's humble. He says, he, he says God, you are the solution. You're the solution. I, I can't do this. You're the solution. You are the glorious one that our hearts long to behold. You're the only one strong enough to help me in my weakness. It's also honest. He says, I have belief, but, but, but help me in my unbelief. Now, if we're honest, like how many of us can relate to that? Right? How many of us can relate to that? How many of us can honestly admit, you know, there's a part of me that believes, but there's also, there's also a big part of me that has doubts. And so our prayer is, I believe, help my unbelief. He's also vulnerable. He comes regardless of the mess and t- turmoil that he's in. He comes offering nothing to Jesus except his need. You see, there's this sense in which some of us, we feel like we need to clean ourselves up before we come to God in prayer. We're like the little engine that could, trying to will our faith into reality. We're like, I think I believe. I think I believe. I think I believe. When Jesus says, no, come as you are. Come with the little faith that you have and let me take care of the rest. But some of us act like like we need to clean ourselves up before we come to God. Some of us... I feel like we need to clean ourselves up before we come to worship, before we come to church, before we engage in community. But that's not how the Bible works. That's not how the gospel works. 
That's not how faith, saving faith, works. Jesus says, come as you are, even with the little faith that you have. Let me take care of the rest. Be humble. Be honest. Be vulnerable. You see, but the disciples in this story, they weren't coming from that place. They weren't coming from a place of humility and honesty and vulnerability. And for them, it's not so much that prayer is the magic bullet that was missing for them. It's more that their lack of prayer was evidence that their confidence was not in Jesus. Did you hear that? You see, it's not that prayer was the magic bullet that was missing for them. Because we can, we can read something like this and say like, ah, oh, okay, so if I just pray, then like I'm set, Right? Like that's not, prayer is not a magic bullet. It's not, it's, that's not what it was for them. It's more that by Jesus pointing out their lack of prayer, he was pointing out that their confidence was not in him, that they weren't humble, that they weren't honest with themselves or with him, that they weren't vulnerable before him. And that is why dependence is a gift. The limited life, as my wife likes to call it, is a gift to us. The limited life is a gift. It reminds us of our need. It reminds us of the one who meets our needs, our deepest needs. It reminds us of the glorious God of light who invades the darkness. You see, when we come off of those glorious mountaintop experiences, we, we, we're met with life in the valley. We're met with an unglorious life where things is, are not always glamorous and things aren't always great. And we have our own flesh, our own, our own selves, our own psyches kind of speaking lies to us, right? Like putting ourselves down. We have, we have a spiritual enemy that, that, that seeks to discourage us. And if we listen too much to them rather than the good news of Jesus, then we'll be a faithless and unbelieving generation like these disciples. And Jesus says, look, the reason that you couldn't, you couldn't do that, the reason you couldn't cast out this demon, is because you didn't have a posture of prayer, a posture of humility. You weren't listening to me. Remember what the Father said? This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him more than you listen to yourself. Listen to him more than you listen to the lies and deceptions of the enemy. I wasn't planning on originally putting this in, in, this, uh, uh, in this sermon, but I, um, I'm, I'm reading a book right now called Spurgeon's Sorrows by Zach Eswine. Uh, the, the subtitle is The Realistic Hope for Those Who Suffer from Depression. And in one point, he, he talks about... Um, like how uh, when, 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 the, when the enemy in our flesh is, is speaking lies to us, like there's, there's, there's nothing that, that the enemy could say to us that, that Jesus can't triumph over, right? I mean, the, the enemy might even be trying to discourage us with truth, right? With real truth about how jacked up we are and how jacked up our lives are. But there's nothing that Jesus can't triumph over. And, and, and I want to, I was reading this last, last, last night, uh, and, and it, it, these, these, he, he asked, Zach Aswin asked this series of questions, uh, and, and he just points out to us that, 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 that the triumph and victory of, of, of Jesus over the enemy. He says, um, in essence, when, when, when we're being uh, discouraged by the enemy, we might use the phrase, hey, look, you might be right, but Jesus. You might be right, but 
Jesus. And then he's got these, these statements. He says, look, you might be right. Things are worse than I thought, but Jesus. You might be right. All is lost, but Jesus. You might be right. I'm abandoned by those I love, but Jesus. You might be right. I should probably stay down, but Jesus. You might be right. It would be too late for me to fix this, but Jesus. You might be right. I'm a sinner, but Jesus. You might be right. They might be better off without me, but Jesus. You see, the purpose of the glory of the mountaintops is to give us hope in Jesus in the midst of darkness, in the midst of the valley. That's why Jesus wants to come with to him, like just not trying to offer anything of ourselves, but just to come to him with our need. William Booth says, the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. Another word for surrender is, is, is active dependence. You see, we think of dependence and surrender as, as scary words in the Western world. We think of surrender and dependence as scary words, but in Jesus' world, they're not scary. They're the source of life because they drive us to him. When we surrender, we see Jesus for who he really is. When we are actively dependent on him in prayer, then we remember the glory, the glory that he has. You see, when we feel like we have tunnel vision, like glory is in the past or, or we're not ready for the valley, what do we do? What do we do when we're in those moments? We do what the Father told us to do. When the Father told Peter, James, and John, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Turn to him. Trust in his promises. Lean into who he is for you. That he's the way, the truth, and the life. The one who makes all good things possible. He is the hope who satisfies our longings. He's the strength that helps us in our weakness. And that's what getting a glimpse of God's glory does for us. That's what getting a glimpse of his glory on the mountaintop does for us, is it reorients our attention away from ourselves, away from our troubles, and it centers us on Christ and on his triumphant and victorious hope. The reason that we enjoy glory is not to make much of ourselves, but to take our attention off of ourselves and to center it on the one who is worthy. John Piper says it like this. He says, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. You see, at, at Mount Sinai, the mediator of the Old Covenant, Moses, was commissioned. On the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, the mediator of the New Covenant, Jesus Christ, was revealed and confirmed. And on that day, Jesus was radiating the glory of God. He was marked by the Father's love, and he was clothed in a bright, holy light. But on another mountain... At the end of his life here on earth, on the cross, he would be stripped naked, clothed only by his blood, and he'd be left in the dark 
on the cross, Jesus wasn't surrounded by crowds and by, he wasn't surrounded by prophets, but he was surrounded by criminals. And on that day, he wasn't receiving the voice of favor, but he received the hand of judgment from God. He took the penalty we deserve so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be transformed. You see, we need the glory of Jesus on the mountain to understand how to live in the valley. And we need to understand his suffering in the valley of death if we want to understand our own resurrection hope and glory. On this side of death, Jesus has left us with his word and his promises. And so we listen to him. He sits as our mediator between God and man. And so we pray to him. We'll run into suffering, like on, on this side of death, we'll run repeatedly into suffering, we'll run repeatedly into adversity, into trials, into loss, into anxiety, but these things won't have the last word for us, Jesus will. Whatever pain, whatever trial, whatever challenge, we bring it to Jesus with the little faith that we have. He takes care of the rest, and like he did with the little boy, he'll rise us up. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.